Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast, where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we are launching our Masterclass series. Every day this week, we'll be dropping one new episode each day to give you even more opportunities to grow from some of our industry's most renowned planners. Today on the show, we're catching up with Mark Earls, Chief Herdmeister and author of Herd, How to Change Mass Behavior by Harnessing Our True Nature. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Sister Merci for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Hi, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be with you today. And um, I uh, am quite humbled by the introduction. So thank you so much, Michelle. Um, I... I started life as a planner strategist in um, in London agencies, and I sort of worked my way to the top um, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and my last job was chair of the Global Planning Council at Ogilvy, which meant essentially International Fire Department, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which took me some interesting places. But it was always it was always seemed to be two weeks after um, we they said everything's fine, nothing's on fire. And then I get a call in the middle of the night going, you need to get on a plane to Panama tomorrow or whatever, right? So um, so that wasn't the most rewarding thing. Uh, I have always been interested in uh, how people work and, and reading the science of how people work uh, from the social sciences, the behavioral sciences more broadly, and um to and also cognitive science so i by the you know i think it must have been the turn of the millennium i was uh i yeah i started doing that job at ogilvy and but i've been arguing for what we now know as nudge um theory the sunstein and, and thaler stuff and uh daniel kahneman of course that we needed you know our ideas about how human beings are completely unhelpful um it's like having the wrong map and I came from that realizing that I have a really, I need to draw a map of how people are that's useful for people who do the kind of jobs that I've been doing. And it turned out it's very useful for other people too. So um, I sat down and wrote, uh, my second book was called, yeah, Heard. Um, and uh, it's been, been very kind to me. I've met all kinds of people through it and it's really helped me explore that way of seeing people and that the simple the very simple idea at the heart of it is this is mm-hmm. that we are a me species a we species with the illusion of me mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. the impression that we're individuals who act on their own but actually we mostly act in the con- context of other people using mm-hmm. other people's mm-hmm. brains and other people's behavior so that's uh, so that's the basic idea that's what i call herd theory Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I've got to say, at the time, everyone was really polite but a bit dismissive. So whether it was whether it was in whether ahead it was, of your time, <laughs> well ahead of my time, yeah, either that or just one of the crazy ones. Um, uh, I, I remember people at uh, at Ogilvy in the UK and the US and Canada all going, "Yeah, it's really interesting, but it's probably only true about poor people, yeah, because they don't know better." Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Uh, foreign people, so I think they meant by that people in the developing world who mm-hmm. clearly do know better. Uh, young people, mm-hmm. and quite misogynist um, response said, you know, well, it's clearly women who are like this. Yeah, uh, nice. women just—they do what other women do. You know, it's just how they are. It's not like us men. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, but uh, but at the time you think about it, this is you know, 
20 odd years ago, Zuckerberg was still in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we really didn't have very much in the way of our social web at all. Um, in fact, there were just a few people dreaming about it in Silicon Valley. Um, so it was a big, it was a big, um, uh, challenge to lots of people and, and they found it easy to dismiss. But, you know, now it's, it's so common that I switch on the, the TV or the radio or open a book or something or newspaper piece and somebody says, well, of course we're a social species, you know, mm. so I, I think maybe my work's been done with that, but, um, mm-hmm. there you are. Cause that's her thinking how it came about. Terrific. And and I'm curious as to the practical implications and applications of this, because, you know, when I read your, your books and then I read, I went on to read a copy, copy, copy and, and, and use the, the, the workshop cards and everything. It completely blew my mind because when I went and even had a look at like a creative brief template, I was like, well, this whole thing actually (laughs) needs to be re-engineered in terms of even how we're thinking about target audiences or how we might think about, you know, so-called single-minded propositions and how we can better get them to spread amongst groups of people. So I'm curious as to what your 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 top your your first tip would be into what do we actually do with this? Um, how does it impact or change what we do? So here's a, here's the thing. Um, uh, I started thinking about this in response to uh, about heard I wrote a, a market research society paper. My insights community very kind to me. Um, in response to something that two of my mentors had written, so um, Ginny Valentine and Wendy Gordon, um, great market researchers of their day, had written something called the 21st Century Consumer, which seemed to me to be about definitive um, as you could be. But I suddenly thought there's a the, there's a definite article in there, which just doesn't seem, what if it isn't the, what if it's several the's? What if it's people interacting with each other? What if it's, and so it developed from there. So what I rule number one then is not to write about the target audience, the consumer, but to think about the worlds in which people live. You're actually targeting worlds, networks, groups of people, clans, families, tribes, you know, lots of different overlapping concepts here. But the important thing is not to have who's the consumer. The consumer is not a moron. You know, that's the David Overby saying, but it's it's just wrong to think about the most of the time, most of the time, it's wrong to think about that. And I mean, now we talk about, and again, I, I do think you were before your time, because now we talk about influencers uh, yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah. h- how does that thread into this conversation? Well, I think the influence thing is really interesting uh, in two ways. One of which is that it's been leapt on as an alternative to um, uh, existing traditional legacy media that don't seem to work so well. So influence is a better way to reach people in a more authoritative more authoritative manner. Um, and uh, uh, so that's the first thing. And that's the glee with which the industry has gone through. Um, the second thing is that it's like opera, but opera, but, you know, with lots of, um, lots of younger people in it. This, the second thing, I think this is really important, is influence is not in the voice or the tweet or the TikTok of the influencer, it's in the eyes and ears and heart of the audience. Influence is something you take from people, not something you you have done to you. Because that's called strong arming. And we know from thinking about how advertising works, persuasion isn't a terribly good model of thinking about, about how a stimulus like advertising might. So it is you know, with, with influencers. 
you know, my model of human behavior, which is, you know, my academic colleagues have, have got it into, you know, top tier journals. My model is that um, what we call social learning. So people learning from each other, copying, I call it in that, that book you, you've referenced, copy, copy, copy. That's how people get influence. So um, you need to be really careful first to get that concept right. So realize these are not people who are just mini broadcasters for you but they are do something for their audience. The audience takes something from them. So you need to understand that bit rather than them. And there's a third thing, which is the way that things spread. And I cover this in a book I wrote with professors um, Bentley and uh, O'Brien called um, I'll Have What She's Having. And the, the social science of it is like this, is that most of the time the way things spread means that they don't spread through the same nodes of a network twice. They spread it in different ways. So you can be, it's what um, it's what they, they call accidentally influential. It happened to be you, the person that someone else looked to um, in order to uh, in order to make their decision rather than um, it being that person being so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I hear in all this and, and, you know, what I kind of stumbled upon as I read all this was just how incredible, I'm not the first to say this, but just how incredibly lazy <laughs> we, we all are, uh, you know, the shortcuts and, and all that sort of thing, um, which I actually find really fa- both fascinating and humbling. Yeah. And it's um, humbling to know, but it's also brilliant as well. So one of the things, and this is, I've got a real bee in my bonnet um, to use the old fashioned phrase, I've got a bee in my bonnet about the way that behavioral science books and the way that we who apply behavioral science to um, to our work talk about rationality and irrationality, as if, it, if as if rationality was the perfect human style of thinking and choosing and deciding, um, and irrationality is some kind of failure. It's just a weak and it's not very good. Um, the way I talk about it is this, is that humans are really smart. They've got faster <laughs> algorithms than, than almost anything else in their brains, and they do even better together. Um, it's a bit like uh, the difference between Kirk and Spock. Kirk is brilliant. He needs a bit of Spock now and again, but he really is mostly intuitive, impulsive, approximate, and so on. That's how humans are. So if you hold on to the Kirkness of your audience, then that's really good. And of course, it's a team game as well, because there's a whole crew of the USS Enterprise. It's not just Kirk or Spock. And they're all, most of them are, most of them are more Kirk than they are Spock. Even when you're sitting in, like you're presenting in a boardroom to a client, um, uh, it's worthwhile remembering that they they put on a number of sort of cultural rappers that say i'm terribly rational i'm only going to be interested in the rational stuff but actually they they're human like the rest of us and um they are more kirk than they are spock and you need to find find the kirk in them in order to really communicate with them successfully okay okay so uh forget the consumer not forget the consumer think more about tribes worlds networks and clans what's your tip number two tip number two is think about the space between people not the space between their ears so that's a really, it's a really big shift. You know, a lot of the behavioral and cognitive science has come out in recent years. All this nudge, most of this nudge stuff is about cognitive biases, let's say. Weird shit that our brain does because it is constructed the way it is, because it's lazy, as Kahneman calls it, uses these shorthands to get approximates. It works amazingly well and amazingly fast. Um, that's really good. But 
it works even better in conjunction with other people. So we have to, as marketers and advertisers, to think about the space between people. How are they interacting with each other? Can they see each other's behavior and choices? You know, there's a, there's a reason why politics around the world and around the developed world has used things like, um, uh, use things like rallies, like buttons, like bumper stickers. Those are visible things that between people. That's the space between people. I once did a project with a, with a client who bought some, um, bought a rum brand, um, and didn't know what to do with it, but it somehow got successful in the US and the East Coast of the US. And so we went on a fantastic, amazing, jolly for 10 days of a rum safari up the east coast of the united states and we did it by going to the places where we thought people would be drinking this particular product we had a list of distributed you know of, of distributors and so on and it was really enlightening to see people in the environment in which they consumed chose and consumed the product um and to see what how they saw each other what lines of sight they had what kinds of things they did together what the culture of these places was is it's not just good enough to go we're going to get we're going to go and do lots of lots of merchandise point of sale you know it just doesn't work like that you have to yeah you might need some badging there but how are people interacting with it? how do they know that that i'm drinking of this or the other thing so, so that's the space between people is really really important um and think about that as it's not just a touch point it's uh, a space where people where where there's opportunity, but there's uh, there's opportunity, but there's also challenges because if people aren't able to see each other, then there's no space between them that you can really use. Yeah, and I actually think that that point has really important implications for research. And you mentioned Wendy Gordon earlier, and I remember reading her book um, Mind Frames and just thinking about the overlay of obviously behavioral science on that because you know it makes me consider. You know, you do these like for example, one-on-one depth interviews, uh, individual depth interviews mm-hmm. with people. Or you have very direct ways of asking them, you know, why you choose a brand, which has all sorts of things wrong with it. <laughs> but, but when you think about specifically to your point about the space between people and maybe the, the I mean, I can't believe I'm actually advocating for focus groups, but, you know, or, or just having so, some sort of a group activity or using projective or indirect techniques to observe maybe the behavior between people. I think that's right. I think it, what Wendy would call a bricolage method is needed to, in research to try and get in, into that stuff. But just understanding the place in which they use and consume this stuff, you know. And um, I'm working with a with an auto insurance startup at the moment, and one of the things we're doing is getting into cars with people and understanding them in their automotive, in their vehicle. What's it like? What's their world like? How do they spend their time driving? What's you know? You need, that's stuff you need to do. How do they see each other's behaviour? And, and, you know, we know that they don't talk much about the insurance thing, but what's, what's the stuff that's the context of their driving that we might be part of, you know, that's, that give us opportunities. You know, historically, I'm, it, I know it's true in Canada um, that, you know, insurance companies used to, and, and recovery uh, services used to have a, like a window sticker. You could sit, stick up in your window saying, so I'm insured with these people, you know, that's a standard practice. And we've stopped doing that kind of. I don't know why, really, but we've stopped doing that. But that's kind of important. It's kind of important. And uh, if you look at di- across different cultures, other opportunities then emerge. So I don't know if you've ever been to India. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners have. But in India, trucks get decorated incredibly, incredibly decorated. Um, and um, uh, even in a taxi in Mumbai, you'll have a little Ganesh sitting there 
to protect you. So this this is the stuff that allows people to see what other people are up to and, and gives people a sense that they're connected to other people. You mm-hmm. know, religion, ritualistic stuff is often, even if you do it on your own, gets gives you a sense of brother and sisterhood. Well, it makes me think of political signs that people put out on their front lawn as well, right? You're totally. signaling, yeah, that you're part of a, a tribe or that you have these beliefs and values. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which brings me to number three, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is help people with the groups that already exist. Help those groups function better. So um, in B2B business, there's this uh, innovation, there's this thing that uh, Clay Christensen's gang in- invented, which is the jobs to be done. I'm sure you've come across that, which is basically it's for focusing you as a B2B marketer to think about what uh, what what's really going on in the, you know, what keeps the, the, the target awake at night? What are they really trying to do with their lives? And, and if you can show a benefit to solve some of that stuff, you're useful and interesting. And that's the beginning of a positioning, right? Um, uh, in that kind of world. But it's the same in consumer stuff. Um, you know, how can you, um, how can you help that group do what it seems to be wanting to do and the members of that group? You know, sometimes, you know, it's not just a matter of saying, you know, if I'm an, uh, you know, a tech brand, I can help you organize your meetings. That's all very well and good. But why are they having meetings? What are they doing with those meetings? What's their, and what are the, what are the problems that the barriers in the way of those being successful? That's the kind of thing you really need to think about. Um, Because that's a group of people that are working together. Now, sometimes that's a company, but very often it's not. There's lots of ways in which we now organize ourselves, self-organize ourselves. Um, uh, to to do stuff that actually you can have that if you want to want to be good in herdland you need to serve that group and its interests yeah uh I, I feel like i'm starting to get a sense of maybe why your book was uh you know people maybe didn't wholeheartedly accept it some 20 years ago because i mean obviously within western society there's so much individualism and so much focus you know time magazine the cover was was me you um, yeah and, and, you know, maybe people thought it was more of a kind of a West versus East kind of a thing. Well, it is uh, sort of. It's, I mean, let's yeah. be honest. The Anglo-Saxon world is uh, out on a limb. Everywhere else in the world, it's we first and me second. You know, we tell ourselves that way. When I was doing the Ogilvy thing, I was working with some really talented people from other cultures, from, from sub-Saharan African cultures, from um, Latin America, from Scandinavia, and from uh, Asia-Pacific. None of them, none of them had a, a me culture, but they could talk our language and, you know, play the game because that's how they think, you know, it's supposed to be. But actually their insights into how people really work, the deep insights are all about we. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, some of them are not, not great. So one of the things that comes with every group, and this is one of my five, so we're moving along sharply, um, uh, there's in and out groups. Is a central part of human uh, of human life. Which group are you in, and which are you not? In disruption thinking, that you know the TBWA guys have, have followed, and but also Clay Christians, his game. In disruption, you think about what the enemy is, and take the enemy on. Um, and I think that each group has enemies, has threats and challenges, and are part of our job when we're serving that group is helping them work out where their boundaries are or, or rebuild their boundaries or um, uh, justify the group over others. I mean, this is the, from a few years ago, Apple and um, uh, and uh, IBM went head to head on their 
PC thing. It's just PC guy versus Apple guy. And you go, well, um, that's, that's what kind of person are we? Um, you know, and, you know, Nike used this really well with their, um, with their, uh, you're, you're this kind of person along with us. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Just on your own. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because it provides, I think, an immediate shorthand for all the, you know, values that you recognize with and all the ones you don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly right. Exactly mm-hmm. right. And that, you know, I think that, um, you know, the way that, that humans form these groups it, are, are rarely exclusive in modern society, even, mm-hmm. in, the, even in the developing world. Mm-hmm. You belong to a number of groups, not just one. And yeah. your social identity is constructed in collaboration with other people yeah. within these groups. And it's a matter you, of who are we and who are we not. Have you noticed the vernacular change in the, you know, the 20 or so years that, that, that you've been doing this? I mean, I feel like we used to talk more about singular kind of consumer insights. And, you know, now we're all talking human truths, or I don't even know what the next thing is. I think that's, I, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I also think that we talk a lot about networks much more than we used to. And that's a good step forward. Although I do worry about the network, the mechanistic, um, bit of network thinking, because, um, you know, as if, as with the influencers, the influencers idea is assumes that networks have a simple, hub and spoke structure so there are some hubs with uh, and lots of spokes out to smaller people but it's clearly not like that in most human societies the guys that i wrote that i'll have what she's having book with were, were really really important for me to understand how um this accidental influencer thing happens because you know human networks shift all the time all the time I mean, that's why we can tell stories about families and and about the you know about the connections we have in our lives. It's shifting all the time. It changes. Changes yeah. never fixed. Never fixed. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, I think things have become extremely fluid as well during pandemic times, and as it relates to networks, like maybe people who you thought were in one type of group or that you recognized with, maybe were in a different type of group, or you know, yeah. all these different kind of. Uh, you can call them quakes or changes or whatever it may be. Can yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a whole bunch. Of, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happened during the pandemic. It was wasn't it weird, wasn't it? It was like one big weird social experiment where we excluded the most important thing in our lives, other people. Um, you know, Freud once said, "You can you can never escape the other." Well, we did pretty well physically during the, much of the pandemic, but um, you know, it was it was it just told me a lot about how important other people are. Um, and, uh, I found that that was a really interesting thing. The, a lot of things have changed though, without us realizing that they are big changes. So I was doing one of the things I'm working on right now is thinking about time and using time more productively in our work. Um, and, uh, I built a huge, um, uh, foresight game for, um, Merck, wonderful, um, Lisa at, um, at Merck. And, uh, um, one of the things, you know, lots of scenarios come up and, and of course the cynical, um, uh, executive goes, well, that'll never happen. And, and one of the, it'll never happen examples we had was, um, uh, was telemedicine, you know, using video calling rather than face-to-face consultations. And of course, it's all the, at the time, all the research said, no, 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 no. But now, of course, it's the, it's the preferred way of interacting 
for it's much easier for both patient and consultant. Um, so that's an example of something that changed without us really realizing why or how. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff about the groups we belong to and how we engage with each other. Um, but it has been changing. So after first sort of spike of, of COVID and, and sort of lockdown loosening in, in various parts of the world, there was a euphoric sort of, let's go and go crazy. Um, and then in some places that is, that's and of course, then there were people ignoring it all the way through. So, and treating, um, uh, treating their, their identity, taking on um, the proposition that all of this is invented. It's all fake mm-hmm. news. So well, there was yeah. also a lot of conversation about me and we, right, during the pandemic. Totally. Because is it totally. my rights or is it our collective, you know? Uh, absolutely. Um, and that's that's yeah. the thing about vaccination, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. just about mm-hmm. you, it's about the rest mm-hmm. of the population. I'm mm-hmm. sad to say that the uh, part of the world in which I was born and all my family come from, South Wales, is um, had a um, uh, has had another um, measles outbreak because of anti-vaccine in a particular part of that community and it's really hard for people to get over there's there's the, the thing which i think i wrote about in her the the um very apparent connection coincidence of giving um, mmr and then someone and then a child developing the symptoms of autism um it's very difficult to untangle that from the, the causation there but it's it's a very easy story to tell. These vaccinations cause problems, and and you link that then with also people's response to, as a group, to external authority figures like government. They can't tell us what to do. They can't tell us. They can't make me wear a mask. And it's it's not about that. It's not about the mask, and it's not about the vaccination. It's about some other stuff, isn't it? And that goes around a group, and the group reinforces itself. And it's not social media that's the the, the deal. I don't think social media. Own technology only amplifies us rather than is evil in itself. So, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of we stuff um, that um, has emerged and it's often hidden in the me language. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, so I took down tip number four is identify the in and out groups. What's your final tip? Um, the final tip is um, give them something to do. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe that... Um, on the basis of the, on the basis of the the, uh, the literature, the scientific literature, but also on the basis of the work of people like Andrew Ehrenberg, um, uh, that attitudes change after behaviour changes, not before. And I wrote about this in in both my first book and in Herd. It's really important to think about um, not trying to persuade people of something, but give them something to do together which will then bring their opinions in line with their behaviour. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, and useful approach now. Um, if you think about it not as individuals, but as a group doing something together, you're actually re- you're actually going back to the, the second thing I talked about here, which giving helping the group operate better. Giving people something to do together. It's, I mean, it's, you know, think about it, you do an offsite. And actually, it doesn't really matter what the stuff you do in the offsite is. The, the fact is you did an offsite together and you get to know each other and you get to do something and there's something, there's vague value that comes out of the end. That's really important. That's really, really important to so give people something to do together. And that can be 
um, I don't even remember. It's about six, seven years ago that the um, that people um, take having the the torch on their on their smartphones in the air at a gig. That started. It started spreading, and then and then Beyonce did something really brilliant, getting her audience to do that and move around the room. It's really clever. Um, that's giving people something to do. What a brilliant mm-hmm. thing! Yeah, what a brilliant thing! Yeah, and and, and that was another thing which you know. Go back to the brief has massive implications, I think, for, you know, our very traditional single minded proposition. What's the one thing you want to say? And just that single change of that word say to do, but it completely reframes the whole document. Yeah, no, exactly. And she said one. So when I was um, we were running St. Luke's, uh, which is a crazy at the time, crazy creative collective, we rewrote, redesigned the creative brief, not just because that's what you do when you're a planning director, but, you know, we'd redesigned the brief. Um, uh, to make it a useful document and to reflect how we actually did things. So we talked about, you know, yeah, it's a business problem, but made that really clear um, what the what the business problem was and how marketing was going to help that um, in one sentence. But then be really clear. So what's the behaviour we want people to do? What do we want people to do becomes the most important thing. And how you get there, well, there are lots of ways to get there. And we would leave that as something that we filled in as we explored it together. Yeah. And and what I've seen it devolve into sometimes, you know, I have been guilty of this too, uh, which I think can be a bit lazy, but it, it's the opportunity to keep pushing the thinking is it's not simply just buy more or switch yeah. brands or yeah. <laughs> like the ultimate. No, 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 yeah. no exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we did it. We did a war winning piece of work for uh, Clark's shoes, the classics as desert boots and their, and their derivatives. Um, and um, we had to get not just to buy more. We were really clear that the, buy, the consumer was buying one and a half pairs a year, and we wanted to buy them, them to buy two and a half pairs a year in our audience on average. And that means just one more in one of the seasons, one more pair. Um, and uh, what's the most effective way to get there? Well, it wasn't a very rational message, turned out to be, and it involved uh, involved making doing a slight refit of the merchandising in store. But what it simply, we ended up, and I wrote this after we, we'd explored it creatively internally, um, celebrate the unique pleasure that a new pair of shoes gives you. That's it, you know, and that's, so that's an unusual strategy that comes out of being really clear what you want people to do as a result. Who, and, and exp- being open enough to go, I'm not going to know what this is, but it's probably not um, a simple message. It's probably not. Sh- new shoes are great. It's actually a celebration of. Yeah. And that just opens up a whole other window, I think, into what sort of insights you might look for as well, I think. Uh, I think that's starting right. starting point's completely different. Starting point's yeah. completely different. And um, we, uh, a big, weirdly, because this is before I'd, I'd started on the herd stuff, um, we an important part of the execution we discussed was people seeing each other's joy um, in new shoes. And there was a slightly pervy voiceover at the end, which just said, ooh, new shoes. <laughs> um, uh, which, you know, and that's, so it's slightly light, lighthearted and, and very British humour. But um, yeah, but I think it allowed, we got thinking about how do we get this, seeing other people and, and letting other people see your joy in your new shoes. That needs to be something that we were, um, and that's why that, that slight pervy line for a while entered the, the, um, the, uh, the 
vocabulary of the of the of the audience. Um, but here's the thing: that process is an example of how I, if I was still doing planning in agencies, this is what I'd be doing. I would want to have more open, collaborative discussion and work with creative people, and to treat them more like adults and less like spoiled children or scary wizards. Because, um, you know, as it happens, some of my best friends are creative people. I just had a breakfast meeting this morning with with uh, Laura Jordan-Bambach, who runs Grey uh, in London. Um, and she's amazing. Uh, one of the best creative in areas I've ever worked with. But you work with them, right? And you treat them as intelligent. They need something from you. You, need, you can help them get to the right place, but you do it together. So having a brief which tells them, which is basically what you might give to a short order chef, right? That's do me one of these. It's just no use at all, and particularly if it's got the model of transmitting information um, to change behaviour and change attitudes, and then change behaviour. Particularly if that's embedded in a single-minded proposition, yeah. it's just really unhelpful. Well, that's interesting. That's almost like your your bonus tip because obviously, as as you're saying, this has a lot of implications for internal agency process or approach in how yeah. maybe you rally people around uh, the the brief or the problem. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's one of the things they say in innovation, and, and it's absolutely true, is that you've got to think about the problem, the problem, the problem, and just be confident there are lots of solutions to that problem. Not worry about designing the solution, but focus on the problem. If everyone's thinking about the problem, then you can be open-minded and have really interesting, interesting, novel, fresh, more effective solutions, and you can indeed copy from far away as that book of mine copy copy says you can steal things from another place um which is where the where the greatest value is in, in copying things stealing from far away there's a little story can i tell you a little story before we finish which i think is um, which i think is uh, something that, that that plays into that um that notion of collaboration between planner and, and creative person um and it's it's this is the story of a um a cardiac surgeon and he's one of the best cardiac surgeons in the world. He's um, coming up to retirement, and he um, he he's been medical director of the Great Ormond Street Hospital and Gresham Professor of Physics at Physic at UCL London. Martin Elliott is his name, and um, he has noticed that. Um, he noticed that there were some. There were. He was worried about the number of mortalities and the number of um, uh, post-operative deaths. That not that increased, just the number of them. He just wanted to reduce that. And he looked at whether it was a surgical thing, and he looked at, and looked around the world of surgery, where there's something else that you know, in, with pediatric heart surgery, it's really large number of people and a tiny, tiny vulnerable infant in front of them. Um, and these operations last 12 to 15 hours. Amazing, amazing concentration. Anyway, um, he sat down one Sunday because he'd been operating all weekend, as he tends to, in front of the TV to watch uh, the Formula One because he's a big fan of Formula One. And he, he suddenly realized that pit stops could help. The knowledge from pit stops in Formula One could help because when he was a lad, pit stops took a minute or two and very often there'd be a mistake and the wheel would fall off immediately. And, you know, but they'd managed to reduce in the 40 years that he, the third, 40, 50 years been watching Formula One, 
has managed to reduce the mortality rate and the error rate down from whatever it was, 100% down to naught, almost nothing, almost never have missed. And the time from a minute or two down to seconds, three, four, five, six seconds. How have they done that with being safer and safer? How have they done that? So he said, well, why don't we take, they're solving a handover problem, essentially. All these people with different, different inputs to a vehicle with a tiny vulnerable human inside, highly flammable stuff going on. Um, why don't we take the way that they've solved these, this handover problem from the IC, from the surgical team to the ICU team? And if we solve that, we've got a whole bunch of things that, that would improve. So we called up, uh, called up Ferrari and got the Ferrari pit team to come in and observe the surgical teams. And, you know, this isn't some, you know, Mickey Mouse um, surgical team. This is one of the best pediatric heart surgery teams in the world. Um, you know, uh, and and he 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 said he, the the guy from Ferrari was shocked when he saw how many human errors, how basic stuff was not being caught in um, in this surgery team. So they applied the protocol for pit stop to for Ferrari pit stop team to the handover from surgical to ICU teams, and it, within a matter of weeks. The error rate was down by 40 odd percent. Now, neither you or I will do anything ever as important as do, you know, pediatric heart surgery, saving lives, because, you know, advertising isn't like that. But yeah, you know, we're quite up ourselves, really, aren't we, about how we've got to be absolutely right and, you know, we've got to be in control. And And could we learn from elsewhere? Well, yeah, we could. Martin Elliott, Professor Martin Elliott, was, was modest enough to say we could learn from somewhere else. We could learn how to do this better. What are the other models that we could take into advertising to um, improve the quality and the speed of the output? Where would those come from? And I'm sure, you've, I'm sure you and your readers have come across Creativity Inc. and the great stuff that, that Pixar do. I've used some of that, some of those ideas before, um, and it really works in in making um, in making new things, whether it's marketing, product, or advertising. Um, but why don't we think again about how we do what we do and use other people's expertise to make it better? And I don't just mean stick us on a Gantt chart. I mean really, really think hard about what it is that we do and how do we do it, and how can we do that better using other people's models? Yeah. No, I, I love that. I, it re- reminds me, I, I spent some time at, at What If Innovation, and they used to talk uh-huh, yeah. a lot about borrowing from related worlds, leveraging uh, naive experts, uh, yeah. literally what you're just saying. So like, think yeah. about where else in the world do we see a similar problem? What's the principle behind this problem? That's um, exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. it really expands your thinking. I, in, in my copy, copy, copy um, uh, book, I talk about kinder questions. Mm. It's a triaging thing we have to do better, right? Yeah, yeah. When you're, when you're doing strategy, you have to triage. You have to say, what kind of problem is this? Where have I seen mm-hmm. this before? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. in the world is this? Yeah. You know, um, doing work with a pharmaceutical company in the US is who say, oh, you know, what if, you know, what if, what if um, uh, the, the, the shortage of, of healthcare professionals continues to rise? There won't be enough people who can author, who can you know do uh, authorize our drugs, and maybe it'll go a bit native and go well. Okay, 
How, how do we understand how that is? Well, go to India. That's how mm. it is there. Go to yeah. India and learn how to win in India. And if you can win in India, you can win in the US mm-hmm. in that kind of environment. And I think we, yeah. we all ought to be a bit more like that because it's, it's, you know, we sometimes get think too hard about ourselves and we're a bit, feel a bit vulnerable when we go, actually, I don't know everything and maybe somebody else could teach me something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, the whole point of this podcast, being able to reach out to people like you and <laughs> uh, learn some stuff. So I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to make sure I caught your, your five. So uh, lean into networks, worlds, uh, tribes, and clans. Number mm-hmm. two was think about the space between people. Number three was help people with the group dynamics or help the group operate better. Yep. Number four was identify in and out groups. And number five was give this group or network something to do, make it actionable. Yeah. That was the five. Oh, and I like that. What's the, the bonus tip is, I guess, look elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, rely copy, on copy, space. copy. Copy, copy, copy. Absolutely. And and again, I, I'm going to push those, promote those cards. They've been really uh, useful. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. Stuff. They've been really great. I was thinking All of right. doing another, a new version of those. So if you're interested, give me a shout. Oh, amazing. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you, Mark, so much uh, for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, lovely to speak to you, Michelle, and, uh, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.